Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. It's here, hurricane season 2022. Welcome to our debut issue of season two of our science podcast. The National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, is calling for another active year. We just experienced two extremely active hurricane seasons, marking the first time on record that two consecutive hurricane seasons exhausted the list of 21 storm names. We'll take a deep dive into the forecast. Plus, have you ever wondered how a hurricane advisory is put together? We really typically have one forecaster focused on one particular storm, and that forecaster uh, is really going through a basically a three-hour process to put out that advisory package. How about the cone of concern? And we also look more um, than just at the lines coming out of the models. We're actually looking at how the atmosphere is going to evolve, looking at a lot of the different fields in those models to see, uh, again, how, how it's going to change over the next couple of days. A forecaster from the Hurricane Center chats with us about all the work that goes on at NHC in order to bring you this important information. But first, NOAA has its projections for 2022, and this is what they are forecasting. Here is NOAA Administrator Rick Spinrad. NOAA is predicting an above-normal 2022 Atlantic hurricane season, which would make this year the seventh consecutive above-normal season. Specifically, there's a 65% chance of an above-normal season, a 25% chance of a near-normal season, and just a 10% chance of a below-normal season. For the range of storms expected, NOAA calls for a 70% probability of the following ranges. 14 to 21 named storms with top winds of at least 39 miles per hour. Of these, 6 to 10 will become hurricanes with top winds of at least 74 miles per hour. And of these, 3 to 6 major hurricanes ranked as categories 3, 4, or five with top winds of at least 111 miles per hour. Please remember these numbers will never be able to tell you where a storm will make landfall, so prepare accordingly. It only takes one strike to turn your life upside down. It's never too early to prepare for the devastating impacts of hurricanes. And while we're here today to preview an outlook of what trends will shape this year's hurricane season, it's crucial to remember that it only takes one storm to damage your home, neighborhood, and community. Preparedness is key to the resilience that we need, and now is the time to get ready for the upcoming hurricane season. There is also new technology to help us better forecast a storm. Let me say a word about the accuracy of the forecasting and how NOAA's forecasts have improved in recent years to better predict the storms and protect life and property throughout the hurricane season. Since the year 2000, we've seen a 57% improvement in the average 72-hour National Hurricane Center track error in the Atlantic Basin. This can be attributed in part to NOAA's flagship weather model, the Global Forecast System, incorporating things like drop sonds, 
and Hurricane Hunter flight data into its analysis. Our improved track forecast has allowed us to more accurately pinpoint the area most at risk, which reduces the size of areas that may need to evacuate when a hurricane threatens. This improvement is illustrated in the National Hurricane Center's track forecast cone, also known as the cone of uncertainty, which represents the probable track of the center of a tropical cyclone up to five days out. The cone of uncertainty has gotten significantly smaller since 2005. We've also seen improvements in our intensity forecast. Forecasters can now more accurately predict changes to hurricane intensity early in a storm's life cycle. The National Hurricane Center's average intensity error is now 40% lower than it was in 2000. Looking ahead, NOAA will triple our operational supercomputing capacity for weather and climate this summer. This upgrade will allow for more detailed, higher resolution Earth models that can handle larger ensembles of models, meaning more numerous calculations, more advanced physical considerations, and improved capability to assimilate the data collected out in the storm. Last year was an active season, using up all the names provided by the National Hurricane Center. It also set a record for exhausting all the names in back-to-back -back years. The year before also depleted its list and NHC was forced to use the Greek alphabet to follow storms. If you go back two years, the 2020 hurricane season broke records across the board, and it's the most active season on record with 30 named storms. The 2021 hurricane season, which is the third most active year on record in terms of names of storms, brought us 21 named storms with impacts ranging from the Appalachian Mountains all the way to New England, resulting in over $78.5 billion in U.S. damage. For a look at last year, here's our brand new member of the WSVN team, meteorologist Jackson Dill. It's my pleasure to be part of the WSVN team, but now let's talk about last year's active Atlantic hurricane season with hurricane specialist, Eric Blake from the National Hurricane Center. First, want to start with if you can explain how active the 2021 Atlantic hurricane season was compared to a typical season. Sure. Well, in terms of the number of, of name storms, 2021 was quite busy. Uh, it was one of the top few uh, years. We had 21 name storms, and the average is about about 14 now. Uh, so it's very it was a very busy year, and it wasn't. It was closer to normal in terms of uh, the number of hurricanes was of seven, and then the major hurricanes was slightly above normal, uh, those stronger storms. If you kind of use a combined metric, it was about 50% above uh, the long-term mean. So busy, but not nearly as busy as the, the crazy busy 2020 season. Can you explain why it was so active compared to normal? Sure. Well, we had very warm Atlantic waters dominant for the entire year. We also had um, La Nina conditions across most of the season, especially uh, later in the year. Uh, and we had lighter vertical wind shear uh, that really promoted the formation of, of a lot of these storms. Yeah, those are the primary reasons. Was there any particular storm that you would say was most impactful last season? Well, that's a, that's a pretty easy answer. Uh, you know, Ida was, was pretty dramatic. Uh, that, that storm was more damaging to the United States 
than all the 2020 hurricanes combined. Yet another category four hurricane, one of the strongest uh, on record to uh, make landfall in Louisiana. Uh, That was by far the highlight or low light of the season, depending on your point of view. It seemed like the Gulf Coast was more of the target last hurricane season. Was that area most impacted by tropical cyclones in the U.S.? For sure. Uh, You had multiple uh, multiple uh, hurricanes. I think you had Nicholas and lots of other uh, activity. Uh, fortunately, nothing n- nearly as impactful as, as, as Ida. And you know the, the number of areas, it wasn't as widespread as the 2020 season, but that southeastern coast of Louisiana was hit extremely hard for, with Ida. So last year's season contained another preseason storm since hurricane season starts June 1st. We did have tropical storm Ana that forms before that date. Has the average first name storm been happening earlier in recent years? It has been. It's been, it's crept forward. It depends exactly how you define it and how you define the start to the year, but it's crept forward a week or so in the past few decades. You know, and as a result, we've started issuing Atlantic Outlooks on the 15th now. There's a team put together to, to look at you know, potentially changing the date, but that's it's not as a, it's not as impactful to change the date of the hurricane season is is it to actually warn on these systems to put outlooks on a regular six hour basis rather than the, the special outlooks that happen the rest of the time from December first to to May fourteenth. So that's what we've done so far, and then we'll just have to wait and see what the team decides and what the WO decides to do with that information. Would you say there were any surprises to last year's season, such as Florida avoiding any significant storms, for example? I personally was very surprised by the end of the season. Uh, It was extremely busy through the the 1st of October, and then it kind of petered out. And every now and again, um, you know, La Nina conditions have a tendency to to make the end of the seasons busier than average. Yet it kind of, uh, the season kind of whimpered out, and I'm very happy about it. I wish I understood it better, but we, we, it could have, you know, if we were going on that pace, we probably would end up with 25 name storms, but it just, it just ended early. You know, you had that big major hurricane, Sam, that was out there for a week and then not a whole lot after that. And I'm very happy, but, but I wish I understood and could predict why. Yeah. Thankfully it kind of shuttered off toward the end. Now, is there anything that has been learned from last season related to either forecasting, safety, uh, that could be applied to future hurricane seasons? Well, you know, we learn something every year, you know, we go back and look and see how the forecasts did. Um, you know, we're, a lot of the models haven't changed. So we can look at the biases from, from last year, you know, the GFS, the, the global forecast system, the American model, and kind of the, the common tongue now. It, it's a uh, the more data we get, we can see how the performance changes. I think we've learned a lot about you know, how, this, how that model is actually one of the better ones for Genesis, but it also has more forms. And so I think we're learning more on how to use that. And we've seen some degradation in the, the European model uh, over the past couple of years, uh, but that model has changed a little bit for, for this year. So I think as we kind of look back, uh, we, we put out a verification report and, and see how we did. We look at the model biases and try to you know, make our better best forecasts on, on the basis of those biases. We've also started a new hurricane operations test bed where we're getting projects from the outside uh, world, the Hurricane Research Division, and we expect their work to help us transition 
important research into operational gains. And so we're excited about that for the next few years. Thank you, Jackson. Did you know hurricanes can happen at any time of year? I will have that at the end of the podcast in my brand new segment, Phil's Facts. Have you ever wondered who makes the decision to call an invest? Who's in charge of tasking hurricane recon missions? How are watches and warnings handled? And how does the team at NHC go about putting together the all-important storm advisories? This is Dan Brown, a hurricane forecaster at the National Hurricane Center, and we're going to be talking about behind the scenes at the Hurricane Center coming up next. Severe weather can strike any time, and when it does, Seven's got you covered. 24-7. We'll see storms developing. We have a long line of rainfall here. We are the storm station. Seven News. Tropical season lovers, we have the episode for you. If you've ever wanted to know about the inner workings of the National Hurricane Center, it takes a dedicated and professional team to gather all the data regarding a system, come up with the cone of concern, and publish a storm advisory. This is how it all comes together. With us today is the acting uh, branch chief from the uh, Hurricane Specialist Unit at the National Hurricane Center. Uh, A big welcome to Dan Brown. Hi, Dan. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you, Phil. Uh, Great to be here today. Well, let's start right away. Uh, Once we're in hurricane season and you guys are monitoring disturbances and waves out there, uh, how do you guys decide on what is an invest and what is not an invest? Yeah, so it, a lot of folks get, uh, you know, start hearing about invests uh, once we <laughs> open one. Um, it, it's essentially a way for us to start gathering more information about a system. There's really kind of no hard and fast rule for us to open the invest, but it's really when we start to see that the system has maybe a, a surface center, something that's trackable, that we can kind of track that disturbance along. And then it also gives us the ability to collect more uh, satellite imagery on the system, as well as start to run those models uh, that we can, uh, you know, start to see those trackers from the models where those little spaghetti diagrams. And, and, and we start doing that usually, uh, you know, when we think the system has a potential to form uh, over the next few days. And again, better way for us to track it, start running that guide and start getting that additional information on it so we can try to forecast its, its formation and where it's going to go. Now, uh, for our listeners, what does INVEST mean? What does it stand for? So essentially, it's, it's short for investigation. Uh, essentially, uh, we have a computer system that we, uh, you know, it goes through various numbers. And that's where you see this 90 through 99 right. uh, is, is the numbering uh, part that's used for invest. Uh, essentially, uh, when a system becomes a tropical storm or hurricane, uh, we number those sequentially. Uh, throughout the year. So we have like AL01, which is the Atlantic system number one, which is, you know, first tropical storm, tropical depression of the year. Uh, and that goes all the way up into the 30s or 40s. Hopefully we never have that many in a given season, but we have that many numbers uh, available. Uh, but the end of that number, we never envisioned having 90 storms per uh, a season. So that number is 90 through 99 are used for invest and they're just kind of rotated around. So we uh, you'll see uh, multiple AL90s, say, for a given year as we start with 90, go through 99, and then come back around uh, to AL90. Uh, so, but we, we never really envisioned people seeing this and using it. But, you know, over time, of course, a lot of that information is available uh, through the Internet and, and other places. And so it has become a pretty easy naming convention for folks to, to follow along. 
Now, once you uh, declare something an invest and you start looking at models, I am sure that there are a whole bunch of models that really do not know what to do with an invest. Which models do you usually pay attention to at these early stages of the game? So, so really all, all the various models uh, can struggle with invest. Uh, okay. Typically it's not a very well-defined system, uh, may not have a closed circulation yet. Um, and, and so the models don't have a really good handle on both the structure and also maybe where it's exactly located. Uh, and so uh, we take a bit of caution when we're looking at those models for invest uh, because they do have a lot more uncertainty. And um, one thing too is we actually run some of the uh, regional hurricane models like the H-Wharf and the H-Mon. And those, when we start running those, it kind of assumes there's already a tropical cyclone there. There's already some kind of structure which may not be. So therefore um, that, uh, you know, can cause those models to have different tracks and different intensities that may not be exactly realistic. And that's where us as forecasters come into play and, and try to diagnose those, look at those. But, but I'll just add that there's a lot of uncertainty in that invest phase. So it, it's really the time to keep watching, keep following, um, you know, keep, keep abreast to your local meteorologist that you like, again, because that's when those changes are going to be happening. Now, I know a lot of folks uh, when they see those spaghetti models, that they tend to think that that is set in stone, that that is the line that the center of the storm is going to go right over. And it, that really isn't the case. There's a huge margin of error on either side of that little line. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, uh, with, with all of our forecasts, uh, we never expected, we, we wish it did, but we never really expected to follow that skinny black line. There, there is uncertainty in every single forecast we issue um, and the, the track forecasts have gotten a lot better through the years, but again, they're not perfect. And so, uh, you know, the storm can move a little left or right. And uh, typically there's more uncertainty for weaker systems. So for the invest, for the low end tropical depressions, tropical storms, there really is a lot more track uncertainty. Uh, and so it, it's in those cases that you really do need to be paying attention and checking back with the latest forecast because they're probably going to change. Once we get up into the stronger tropical storm and hurricane intensities, uh, the models do a better job because, again, there's better structure of the storm. It, the models really know where they're at. And at that point, the forecasts tend to get a little bit better, not always, but they tend to, to the models tend to behave and perform better uh, for those stronger systems. And you look at that like with Ida last year. Some of the early forecasts when Ida was still in the Caribbean, when it was an invest, were pointing more toward Texas. Uh, but as the system started to coalesce and began uh, forming, uh, once that happened, the models then really started pointing to southeast Louisiana, and that was about the time uh, that we initiated advisories on it, became a depression, and then uh, the forecast actually turned out pretty good in that case, uh, again, because the storm had gotten stronger, had more structure, and was better to find. Now, I always get asked this question, which is the better model, the Euro or the GFS? Each, each one of them has their day. Um, we, we really do, uh, they're, they're the two, typically they're the two best models and we do look at them uh, a lot and place a lot of weight on those two particular models, but they really do. So, some days, uh, you know, the, the European has, has better days and some days it's a GFS. Uh, we, one thing that's really nice that's it's really come into forecasting uh, play over the last years is looking at an ensemble. So those models aren't just run one time but the GFS has run many times and the European has run 50 times where they just, uh, they, they change the initial condition 
questions just a little bit because there is uncertainty in knowing exactly how the atmosphere is right now. And so when they do that, it comes up with many different different outcomes. And we call that an ensemble plot. And it looks a lot like those spaghetti plots of the individual models, but this is just those two models being run multiple times. And that's a really good way to look at things as well, because it gives you a little bit better look at what the real uncertainty is in a case, what the total uncertainty is. Um, you know, even when those uh, tight lines are clustered, those ensembles may be a little bit bigger spread and kind of understanding more of what that uncertainty is for that particular case. So now you have a, a little system out there in the, in the middle of the Atlantic or the far eastern Atlantic, and um, you have a satellite pass over it, and it's looking pretty good. How do you decide if it gets named as a depression or a tropical storm? So, um, you know, once, once the system, we're watching the disturbance, we're watching the cloud patterns, uh, what we're really looking for is a closed circulation. We need that uh, surface wind field to be closed. Um, and then uh, once that occurs, we're looking to see how well the thunderstorm activity is organized. And it needs some persistence, but it also needs uh, organization. And we have, um, uh, there's, a, there's a tool called the Dvorak technique, where you're basically looking at uh, satellite pictures and kind of matching them uh, with um, uh, you know, sort of pattern recognition. And, and a tropical storm has a certain pattern to a tropical depression does, and then a hurricane. And so we're looking at how much the thunderstorms wrap around the center. Uh, if, it, if, it if it has an eye, how warm is that eye versus how cold are those surrounding cloud tops? And that provides us information on a system's intensity. And that technique helps us to determine if the thunderstorm has enough organization and it's been persistent enough. We also have a tool I should mention called scatterometer data. And it's actually, uh, they're polar orbiting satellites that provide information about the wind speed uh, both direction and speed on the ocean surface. And those can be really valuable to help us A, determine if it has that closed circulation, and then B, how strong are those winds? And that's another uh, very useful tool at determining if a system has become a depression or tropical storm. Okay, so now in the next step of development, it, uh, the winds go over uh, you know, 73, 74 miles per hour and it becomes a hurricane. Um, simple question, who decides what name it gets? So, um, again, yeah, once, once the system uh, has enough winds to become a tropical storm, that's when we assign the name. And there's actually a committee uh, that decides those name lists. So we have six uh, rotating name lists that we use, and that's done by the World Meteorological Organizations. It's Region 4 that covers the Caribbean, uh, Mexico, North America area. Uh, and we meet once a year and we decide on those uh, hurricane names and uh, the names are used again every six years where we rotate through those lists. But for the storms uh, like Ida last year, it'll be a name that will likely be retired uh, based on its uh, amount of uh, you know, destruction it caused, the impacts that, that, it, that it caused. And then uh, the committee will actually uh, vote to determine it will be retired. And then once that happens, uh, names will be nominated to replace the name, and then they're also voted on as well by the committee members. And the, the committee is, uh, most of the committee members are the heads of the various meteorological services throughout the Caribbean, uh, Mexico, Canada, uh, Bermuda, and uh, the, the, the group meets uh, once a year, and the Hurricane Center director, uh, who's right now Dr. Or Mr. Ken Graham, um, he is the chairman of that committee, 
and is the one that leads that, uh, you know, the naming and voting effort. Uh, and it's really part of a, a yearly review of what we call the Hurricane Operational Plan, which is a plan that really uh, talks about how we're going to coordinate and communicate with all those countries throughout the Caribbean when there's a hurricane threat. So now in the next step of the evolution, it now reaches hurricane strength. Um, who decides and who tasks hurricane hunter missions? So, so that uh, responsibility is on our day shift forecaster. Um, we, we, we do work, uh, you know, rotating shifts at the Hurricane Center. Whoever's on uh, the daytime is the one that, that will coordinate the reconnaissance missions for the next couple of days. Uh, there is a group at the National Hurricane Center that's uh, their uh, civilian employees of the Department of Defense, uh, and they actually are meteorologists that will come out and then uh, we'll coordinate with them and we'll uh, look for areas that could form uh, and also threaten land as well as existing tropical storms and hurricanes. If they are a land threat, then we want to fly those aircraft into the storm. Um, and it could be, uh, we, we try to fly them in every six to 12 hours, uh, uh, you know, if they're uh, still a couple days away from being a land threat. And then as they get closer to land, we really want almost continuous aircraft in those storms especially for systems that are affecting the U.S., Gulf, Mexico, Southeast, uh, Florida here. Uh, we really want those aircraft in almost around the clock to provide that information uh, because they're really providing how strong the winds are uh, in the hurricane, not just estimating it, but actually measuring it for the right. forecasters. So now you have the um, United States Air Force, Hurricane Hunters, then you also have NOAA. What is the difference and who is tasked with what? Sure, the uh, Air Force Hurricane Hunters, uh, they're really kind of the, the workhorse for us. Um, they're really doing most of the operational missions uh, in the uh, tropical storms and hurricanes. However, NOAA plays a, a vital part as well. Uh, they do some research missions. Uh, they also uh, do uh, some operational missions for us. And they also have uh, Doppler radar in the tail of the aircraft, which uh, can provide additional information for some of our models. So uh, the Environmental Modeling Center that's part of NOAA will actually task them to fly some of these missions so they can go in, uh, measure the winds from the Doppler radar in the storm. Uh, that information provides a better picture of the structure of the storm, which goes into some of those regional hurricane models and actually do provide better forecast. NOAA also flies a G4 aircraft uh, around the storm at high levels and those are called synoptic surveillance missions. And they're dropping about uh, 40 to 50 dropsons uh, on a mission. And those are instruments that, that are dropped from the belly of the aircraft that fall through the storm and provide a vertical profile of the wind, pressure, humidity in the atmosphere. And those synoptic missions are important because they look at the environment around the storm. And that information also goes into those computer models and proving those forecasts. How do you feel about the new technology that's coming into play? I know that for a while we have had drones and now we're using these sail drones. How is that uh, being worked into what you do? You know, um, there's a lot of remote sense data that is really important for us as, uh, as forecasters. And a lot of that is, has been expanding. You know, I, I think there'll be more use of these, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, unmanned aircraft to collect the data in storms, as well as we saw last year with a sail drone that was uh, you know, directed uh, near the center of uh, a hurricane and provided some valuable information about winds and, and seas. And, you know, one thing to remember, too, like the sail drone, 
Um, we have forecasters at the Hurricane Center that are providing marine forecasts so that ships at sea can stay away from storms. And that sea height information is critically important to them because we want those ships to stay away from, uh, from these dangerous storms. Uh, as we've seen in recent years, you know, unfortunately, uh, ships can uh, go down in these storms. We've had a couple of uh, instances where ships have gone down in, uh, in and near hurricanes. And, and again, we want those folks to stay away from uh, these storms. So in the uh, last steps now of uh, the whole process of uh, following a hurricane, uh, let's say it's worst case scenario, it's aiming for somewhere across the U.S. How do you guys get together to issue an advisory and uh, what's all involved as far as issuing watches and warnings? Sure. Um, we, uh, we have basically two forecasters on each shift at the Hurricane Center. Um, you know, and, and sometimes they're both looking at the same system if, if that's the only system going on. But sometimes we have multiple storms, so it can, it can be pretty busy. But we really typically have one forecaster focused on one particular storm. And that forecaster um, is really going through a basically a three-hour process to put out that advisory package. Um, it starts with figuring out where the storm is located, how strong the storm is, and also how big the storm is. How far do those winds extend from the center? Uh, we take all that information and, and put that into our computer system to initialize all that computer model guidance. Uh, and that takes about the first 30 to 45 minutes of the forecast process. And once we do that, we actually get back those spaghetti plots that you see. And that's when then the forecaster actually sits down to make the forecast. And they're looking at those same, uh, oftentimes those same spaghetti plots. But you know, we, we also have the expertise and experience of, of doing this for a long time. And we also look more um, than just at the lines coming out of the models. We're actually looking at how the atmosphere is going to evolve looking at a lot of the different fields in those models to see, uh, again, how it's going to change over the next couple of days, and then sit down and make the actual forecast. Once we make the track forecast, then we make the intensity forecast, and then also uh, a size forecast. Again, how far out are those tropical storm force winds going to extend? And that takes about an hour in the process. And then once that's done, it's really time to coordinate the forecast. Right. So it's at that point we're talking to either local National Weather Service offices in the United States or the international offices throughout the Caribbean to talk about where we need to put up hurricane or tropical storm watches and warnings. And then the most important thing really is the messaging part. And now, now that we have the watches and warnings and the forecast, what are the hazards? What do we need to message? What's the rainfall gonna be? What's the storm surge gonna be? What are, how strong are the winds gonna be? And for that, we talked to other folks, uh, such as the Weather Prediction Center up in Washington, D.C. Uh, they're the experts on the rainfall forecast. There's a storm prediction center out in Norman, Oklahoma, that talks about the tornado threat. And so we're piecing all that information from all these different experts then to put out that advisory. And it sounds like a lot, but we get it done within about three hours. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's at that point that you see it then at home. And if you're here in South Florida, Eastern time, you know, they come out at 5 a.m., uh, 11 a.m., 5 p.m., and 11 p.m. Uh, each day. Now, I know that the, uh, the uh, forecast track has been excellent over the years. How's the intensity forecast uh, going? Is that improving any? Is there anything that will help in the near future? It is. Uh, there are signs that it is improving. For many decades, we didn't see much improvement. Uh, but about uh, 2010, uh, NOAA introduced this hurricane forecast improvement project, which has tried to really uh, you know, target uh, improvements in intensity forecasting through better modeling, uh, better observations. 
And I think we're starting to see some of the fruition of that now. Uh, the last couple of years, we've had uh, it's, it better forecasts for intensity, especially uh, for some of the rapidly strengthening storms. I think we're better anticipating that. We may not still be getting the magnitude of strengthening, but I think we're at least able to now better anticipate when that may occur. Not always, uh, but for like Ida, uh, we issued some of the most aggressive forecasts for Ida for something that was just forming, a forecasting a near major hurricane strength, and then even the next day then forecasting a category four strength storm by the time it, it would reach uh, Louisiana. Uh, and so uh, between uh, that storm, a couple of the previous year with Ada and, I, and uh, Iota down in the uh, Caribbean, I, I think we're starting to make some progress on uh, forecasting rapid strengthening, although it's, I think it's still going to be many years before we feel uh, extremely confident, uh, you know, to say when storms are going to strengthen that, that quickly. I know we'll get there. I have one final question for you. How is climate change impacting what you do? Um, for us, I don't think it's, you know, right now it's not a, a big impact for us for day to day. I mean, we're forecasting, making a five day forecast um, of the hurricanes. But I, I do think, um, you know, it's something that we should certainly be thinking about. Uh, you know, studies suggest that there could be a, um, a kind of a small increase in the intensity of storms. Uh, the jury's still out on whether there'll be more. Right now, I think it, the science suggests there might be, uh, could be a few less storms per year. But I think a couple things that, that climate change could end up uh, uh, sort of exacerbating is is the storm surge. Uh, we've seen a our kind of a base rise in sea level, and so you add the storm surge on top of that, could cause the storm surge to uh, you know be higher, penetrate uh, further inland, and then also uh, there's been some studies that suggest that storms might move a little slower, and that could cause more rainfall uh, from these storms. And I think that's another concern. We've seen some. Uh, a pretty uh, heavy uh, sort of or large rainfall producing storms the last few years with Harvey uh, along the Texas coast, Florence up in the Carolinas. So again, um, just examples of storms that it moves slow and if they are gonna move slower in, in, a, in the future, uh, it would be a cause for concern for flooding. Okay, Dan, I'm gonna add a little asterisk to this. That, that wasn't the last question. <laughs> this, this is the last question. Um, so you were mentioning about um, uh, you know, the, the forecasting, the track and intensity and all that. And I, and I just thought of, I know for a while you guys were debating a seven day forecast cone. Is that still in the works? So we, we are doing six and seven day forecasts in house, uh, kind of uh, looking to see how, how good or bad those are. Um, they're, they're, right now, they're about as good as our four and five day forecasts were when we introduced those back in kind of the early to mid 2000s. Um, uh, but one, th I think one part of the concern right now is that there's still a few pretty large errors. So about, you know, one out of five or one out of six of those forecasts, uh, can have errors on, you know, 500 miles or more. And so, um, you know, I guess a little caution there about not wanting to put something out that might suggest, Hey, the storm is going to miss the United States and then have over time, have to walk it back because of the large uncertainty at those long lead times. I think one thing we want to look at is how, how can we present that information? Is it, is it just tacking on six and seven days to the cone, or is it maybe putting out some kind of risk area to say, hey, the storm could be within this area at those longer lead times, rather than putting out, say, an actual, uh, what we call deterministic track and intensity forecast. Uh, some of the, there'll be some social science work, I think, that'll go into that to kind of help guide us on, on where we need to go with those uh, longer range forecasts. Dan, this has been wonderful. Uh, I hope that all our listeners 
have learned a lot about uh, what goes on behind the scenes at the National Hurricane Center. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the storm station, Seven News. And now time for a fill fact. Hurricane season is indeed a man-made timeline. Hurricanes can happen at any time of year. The main ingredient for storm formation is hot water, 80 degrees or above. This usually takes place between June and November, and that is what we know as hurricane season. But if hot water is present, a storm can form at any time. The most recent example is Anna. It became a tropical storm May 23rd, 2021. In our next issue, sinkholes. Next on Whether or Not, we talk to an expert from Florida International University about how INSAR radar technology is used to predict sinkholes in Florida and how weather elements play a role in causing them. That's all coming up in our next edition of Whether or Not, which drops June 7th. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, please send us an email at wxpodcast at wsvn.com. This has been Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrow. This podcast is produced by the Seven Weather Team. Original music by Chris Crane. With technical support by Stephen Sejas.